Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Okay, I think we're... So we are recording now. So again, uh, what we're doing is just kind of clarifying anything up to this point that we have discussed. Uh, I would like for you to view everything that we've discussed up to and through today as introduction. (laughs) And so I know what you're saying. My goodness, if it takes them... Uh, whatever that is, uh, seven weeks to get through an introduction. How we're going to be here till Moses comes back, right? Uh, so, it, just just kidding. Uh, so that being said, questions, comments, concerns, criticisms. Um, that, those are all the C words that I have. So, do you expect us as seniors to remember all this? <laughs> you, not as seniors, but as head of the class. You guys are all you're all head of the class. So, so we talked about um, you know in Psalm one, we saw that the way that God views humanity is through two lenses, right? There were two kinds of people that he essentially sees. And the psalmist uses the terminology of the righteous and the wicked. So that's the terminology that I'm using. We might, in, in our vernacular or in uh, New Testament language, we might say believers and unbelievers. Same concept. But we saw the righteous and the wicked, and the difference between the righteous and the wicked was basically their um, who they listen to. The righteous listen to the law, and they meditate on the law of God. The wicked do not. They listen to each other. They listen to the conventional wisdom, those kinds of things. And then we saw in Psalm 2 that there were two systems uh, according to God, according to his revelation, there are two systems, the, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom uh, of heaven, and those two are diametrically opposed to one another, right? One desires good, one desires bad, and in the end, uh, good wins out. Fair enough. Then we looked at Abraham, and we said that Abraham was a Jew that was made, not chosen. So the idea there is pretty simple. God designed this plan of redemption, and he had to call out and make things happen. Abraham didn't willingly choose God. However, when he was confronted with what God offered to him, he believed, right? He believed. Paul says this in Romans 4. He believed God, and because of that belief, because of that trust, because of that faith, God credited it to him righteousness. So we see a pattern there of appointed righteousness or apportioned righteousness is the theological term that we use where God provides for us the idea of a a right standing with him. And then we saw over the next couple weeks that that righteousness was given to us by grace through faith. So we have those two statements Um, They're really, from a literary standpoint, they're prepositional phrases. By grace, through faith. So this righteousness comes to us by grace. What does that mean? We didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it? Doesn't cost anything. Doesn't cost anything? Jesus Christ gave it to us. Okay, Jesus gave it to us. So that that's a very broad definition that you have to apply to that, isn't it? Those are all correct answers. We did not deserve it. God had to do it. Um, God accomplished it. It was God's idea. God carried it out. God provided. So basically you got that concept by grace through faith. What's that mean? Our faith. Okay, our faith. So even though God does it, we have to do something, don't we? We have to believe. We have to entrust ourselves to what he has said. We have to live our lives as though what he has said is true. Uh, and if we don't, then we are considered like the, the, uh, the wicked. Now, as we started to talk about last week, while we have been given this righteousness positionally... So God looks at us, 
I'm going to use Ron as an example because he's right in front of me. So, so God looks at Ron, but he doesn't see Ron, right? He sees Jesus Christ instead of Ron, Ron's actions. The only part of Ron that he sees is what? This sling. This <laughs> sling. <laughs> <laughs> And Ron says, <laughs> What is the only part of us that God sees when he looks at us? Our faith. our faith. God looks at us and he sees our faith. Remember Abraham? He believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. So he sees our faith. He sees our belief, our trust in him. Uh, however, for all things practical, he sees Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at ourselves on a daily basis, and as we talked about last week, we stand in front of the mirror of Scripture, we see a different picture, don't we? Even though God looks at us and he sees this perfectly righteous this perfectly uh, endowed person for his kingdom, what do we see on a daily basis? What's that? Our failures. Our failures? Our sin? What else do we see? I'm not asking for specifics here, but... We see our sinfulness, right? We've talked about this. Sometimes it's not even the fact of the things that we do. It's just our tendency to want to do them. And that's what, remember, that was Paul's argument last week when we were looking at uh, Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. What I want to do, I can't do. The things that I want to do are not the things that I do, but it's the things that I don't want to do that I end up doing. And he says that the problem is... You get extra credit if you get this right. What did Paul say the problem is? It's okay. You can say it out loud. Okay. It is sin living in me. It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. Now, that's key, the the way that Paul says that. Because it's not just that, you know, sin is hanging around. But he says, sin is living in me. Remember, part of the argument that Paul uses is we died. We died to Christ. And, Alan, can I borrow this just for a second? I promise I'll give it back. So we talked about this illustration last week, and we talked about where those three things come together. It is the, uh, the image of God that still lives in us, right? It is that fingerprint of God that is still on us. But sin, because it has invaded the image of God, is now contaminating all parts of us. And so it sort of... Uh, oozes out. Um, so Jim uh, Wickenkamp does, I'm not going to do the illustration here because it makes a mess, but he, he fills a glass with water and he talks about when life tends to confront us with something. We get some type of a difficult situa- situation, it smacks us. So if you take a full glass of water in this hand and you smack it with your hand, what happens? The water spills out. And that's basically what he's saying. If, if that thing is full of sin, if sin is contaminating every part of us when we are confronted with uh, life, when life, uh, God smacks us, as I like to use that phrase, then sin spills out of us, right? So Paul says the answer is for something else to fill us. What was that? The Holy Spirit. He said, we have an obligation to live not according to our flesh, but according to the sin nature. How do we do that? That's really all of our problems, isn't it? I mean, that, that is the question that we all wrestle with. We, we all try and figure, okay, God, I know what it is that you have done. I know what it is that you want from me, but how do I do it? How do I carry it out? And so, essentially, that's what we're going to discuss the rest of the time. That's why I tell you, look at everything that we've talked about up to this point as an introduction. Because it set up the entirety of the problem, and now we need to deal with what is God's solution for this. However, before we get to that point... There's one other uh, foundational thing that I think Paul shares for us. He says, not only do we have an obligation to the spirit of the living God within us, but we also have to deal with the subject of love. 
So, we come to this. Why does God love us? If we are sinful, and I know some of you are looking at me saying, well, I know why he loves me, but I can't figure out why he loves you. My wife says that all the time. Uh, So, uh, why is it that God looks at us, if he sees us as sinful, he sees our faith, all of those things, why does he love us? What do you think? Okay, he created us. They're his children. He's interested in them. We're his children? Okay. We're his people and we're to try to imitate him. Okay, we're his people. He sees our potential. Okay, he sees our potential. Any other thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) So... This is not necessarily uh, politically correct anymore, but I still get a kick out of it when I think of it. And every once in a while, I will mention um, this preacher. Uh, his name was Dr. E.V. Hill. He was from the Los Angeles area, and he came to preach at Moody while we were there. And he was rather... Um, didn't really care what people thought. And I remember I was sitting in a seminar thing that he was doing. So there was a group of maybe 50 students in this room. And he was talking. And he was talking about the subject of why does God love us? Why does God pay attention? He said, you know, in reality, we're like his his, uh, he didn't call us red-headed stepchildren. I don't even remember what he called us, but it, it was really kind of comical. And, uh, but again, it's not something that I think you would want to say today in today's environment. But that is really the struggle that so many people have, right? They view themselves and they say, why, why does God love me? Or they say, okay, I know the preacher said God loves me. I know, you know, Mark Christian said that, or Michael DeFazio said it, or somebody, Rick said it, but I don't believe it. I don't feel it. I don't feel lovable. And so Paul takes up that issue in what we're going to look at today. So if you will turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, and I promise, so uh, we're going to look at Ephesians and then one other verse reference uh, today. And then for the rest of our time, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. So for those of you that have been waiting, you know, normally in my classes, we, we sort of pick a passage and we stick there. Uh, we haven't been doing that, but we're going to. And I will tell you today, the reason that I like uh, today's Uh, I want to say lesson, today's uh, information is it sort of ties everything together in a neat bow. And this is in reality the reason that I chose to teach on this particular uh, subject was because of what we're going to read today. And so hopefully you will see it too. If not, I have done a very poor job. Uh, So Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 is where I'm going to begin. Uh, Ephesians, what type of le- what type? <laughs> I just gave it away. What type of book literature are we talking about? Letter. It's a letter. It's an epistle. Um, in the Bible, we have something called general and specific epistles. Do you know which one this would be? General was it was designed to just be you know the author wrote it and it was circulated through all the churches. Anybody know? This would be more of a specific. So Paul wrote this specifically to the Ephesian church. Now, the other churches read it, but it was specifically designed for the Ephesian church. And when you get a letter like that, typically it's dealing with a problem. Think of the book of Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So Paul was specifically dealing with the Galatian church. Or Corinthians, where he's dealing with specific problems and questions from the Corinthian church. Here we have in uh, Ephesians, he's dealing specifically with the church at Ephesus. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Notice the next phrase, when you followed the ways of this world. What does that sound like?
Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Sounds a lot like Psalm 1, doesn't it? When you were following the ways of the world, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. Look at the next phrase. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. What does that sound like? If that first phrase sounded like Psalm 1, this one probably sounds like Psalm 2, right? Two kingdoms? The kingdom of this air versus God's kingdom? So we have this, this dichotomy set up. He says, you know, you, you walked in, in uh, transgressions and sins when you were listening to the ways of the world and the ruler of the world, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What's that sound like? That last section, what does that sound like? Does it sound like Abraham was a Jew not made? We, we were saved by grace through faith, and this, this faith was not of ourselves. It was a gift from God. See how uh, in, in the Old Testament we saw this picture that God went through and made a people for himself. And Paul is basically using that same pattern, saying in the New Testament, God made a people for himself. Okay? Make sense? Now we come to the heart or the meat of what we want to look at. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to begin in verse 7. Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel. So, in other words, that first section, chapter 2, was the gospel. Just like what we talked about in Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Abraham, Isaac, and Jesus was the gospel. So, here we have the gospel. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given, th- given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentile the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mercy, excuse me, this mystery, which for ages past was was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for which are for your glory. So, the first thing that we see in that section, uh, chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, is that God has a plan. God has always had a plan. And his plan was to do what? Paul spells it out there. What was God's plan? Or his intent. Verse 10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. What in the world does that mean? Through the church, he was going to make known his brilliant wisdom, his blazing wisdom, so that the rulers, the authorities in the heavenly realms understood it. What's that mean? (laughs) That's your job. Tell us what it means. 
What do you think it means? Let's start there. This this is, uh, to me, important because it helps us to understand the character, the nature of God in a way that otherwise we don't. Because basically what Paul is saying here, this is a mystery that was given to him, a revelation that was given to him by God. So it comes from God. We don't have to wonder, you know, did he just pick it out of the trash can one day? Uh, Was he talking to Jack one day? And Jack said, well, I think this is what he said. No, it came from God. What So what is it that, that Paul is saying? Paul is saying that God's intent was to make known his glory, his wisdom over the, author, the ruling authorities in the heavenly realms. Who are the ruling authorities in the heavenly realms? What do you think? Who else? So we have God. We have us. Who else is there? Angels. Angels. We have fallen angels. We have unfallen angels, right? And so that's who he's talking about here. Remember, when we started this process, I told you all along that God's intention was to deal once and for all with evil in the world. It was to deal with the source of evil, which was whom? Satan, right? Satan was the source of evil. And so the only way to really deal with that was to demonstrate that he was above that. And so that was God's intent. That was God's plan from the entirety. So God has a plan. His plan was to make known his wisdom through the church. That's key. Because God says, uh, or Paul says here, God's not going to just, you know, write it on a billboard in Times Square. It's going to come through the church. In this, we get a true understanding of what the purpose of the church is, right? Its, its purpose is to make known the wisdom of God. And our audience is people, this comes from other uh, passages, passages of Scripture, our audience is people, but there's also a secondary audience, and that is those rulers, those uh, demonic forces that are in the heavenly realms, that are trying to corrupt the kingdom that God is building. And God is going to undermine them. And secondly, God's plan is consistent with his eternal purpose. Look at verse 13. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. So sometimes circumstances are going to come along in our life and they're not, we're going to look at them and say, well, okay, God, I'm, I'm sick. How in the world is this going to further your purposes? Paul says, don't be discouraged because of that. Because God's plans are not going to be thwarted. So the point of this, I think, is this. That regardless of what smacks us in life, right? What God smacks us, God's purposes are still intact. And when we believe that, when we truly entrust ourselves to that and believe that, then we are exercising true faith, and in that, God is able to work. Does that make sense? So then we have what, to me, is the most fascinating part of this, uh, which is the prayer. Several times in the book of Ephesians, Paul prays. And Paul prays for the Ephesian believers. And I will tell you, they are some of the most um, beautiful prayers that I think, you know, if you have ever read books of prayers, things like that, sometimes you get into them, you're like, like Augustine, you read some of Augustine's prayers that go on for chapters, not just pages. Um, But these are some of the most beautifully simplistic prayers. So Paul says in verse uh, 14 of chapter uh, 3, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. 
and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So in that prayer, Paul says a couple things. And basically, I want to give them to you very, very briefly. Um, And then the rest of our time is going to be uh, spent sharing. So first of all, Paul says, I want you to be strengthened. And he says, I want you to be strengthened from God's glorious, uh, unique abundance, his, his riches. God has so many things available, so, so much um, power. He, here, Paul just calls them glorious riches. He, he's got a bucket that's overflowing, and I want you to be strengthened by that. Not by the knowledge of it, but I literally want you to be strengthened by that. What's he talking about? Who is it that could strengthen us in such a way that we could know and understand the love of God? Holy Spirit. Spirit. That's exactly who he's talking about. Remember last week we talked about you have an obligation to the Spirit. So here Paul's saying, out of God's glorious riches, remember when Christ said, I have to go so that the Spirit can come. The comforter. And if, if he doesn't come, you're going to be much better off if he comes. You need him, right? You need the Spirit of God. So, so here Paul says um, that I want you to be strengthened by God's Spirit so that Christ may dwell in, our heart, in your hearts through faith. That seems like an odd statement to make to a group of believers, doesn't it? I mean, if you grew up anything like the church that I grew up in, uh, there were constant pleas from the preacher to uh, have you ask Jesus into your heart. And yet here Paul says, my prayer is that Christ would dwell in your heart. Why does he say that? comfortable there you are it's your it's your home Mm -hmm. and i think his desire for the ephesians was that christ would just um, take up residence in their lives that he would be central in focus their focus okay so the idea of permanency uh comfort dwelling uh, you know the idea of like when you're in your own house I don't have a problem going to my refrigerator. If I'm in your house, I'm probably not going to go to your refrigerator, right? Uh, or, or go sleep on your bed, those kinds of things. So, so okay, the idea of permanency, uh, of dwelling there permanently. What else? I think once you've asked him into your heart and the Holy Spirit is a part of your life, now's the time we don't do it often enough because we need to exercise the Holy Spirit. Nothing brings that to mind more than this stupid shoulder <laughs> of mine trying to exercise to get a muscle to work. Mm-hmm. This muscle's not going to work unless I force it mm-hmm. to work. We accept Christ as our Savior. And I remember when I accepted Christ, I didn't exercise Jesus for years. I accepted that I was saved, but God had was still working on me. I went to a foreign land in combat and came back alive. I still didn't exercise Christ. I believed that Jesus Christ was my Lord and Savior, but I never exercised him. Mm-hmm. Until I went to an event called Promise Keepers where there were a group of 5,000 men, and that's 97% men. There were mm-hmm. a few women there that were there to help. Mm-hmm. But then it, the Holy Spirit worked on me to see, hey, you're not by yourself. You've got other people in this crowd. They're just like you. 
And the, the goal of promise keepers at that time was to get men to be men of the family, of the church, and to take over the role of what God wants you to do. Uh, then you realize that, man, he's real. Mm -hmm. So, I started reading scripture. I was on the road as a, we call a road runner. I ran a company out of New Mexico in my territory was Oklahoma. And uh, essentially I was by myself on the road before I'd get to a customer. But uh, at night in the hotel room, I'd read scripture. It didn't make any sense to me whatsoever until probably the next day. Mm -hmm. Something would happen, maybe with a customer or with someone in a cafe or someone at the gas station. Bang. That's what that meant. You see? Until you start to exercise the Holy Spirit in your life, mm -hmm. you won't realize the power that you have in your life that God has blessed you. So when you say exercise the Holy Spirit, is it safe to say, can I uh, insert the word listen to him? Yes. That in exercising you're saying, okay, I read something in the scriptures. He has brought that back to memory the next day. So I'm listening to him. And what's the next step? Do what he tells you. Obedience. You see, I think what, what Paul is saying here when he says, I pray that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith, is he's saying, I want Christ to reign in your heart. We give him the place of reigning in our heart. And again, when we're talking about heart, I'm going to steal this one more time. This is what we're talking about, right? Where, where those three aspects of the image of God in our life come together, uh, that, that central part of who we really are as a person, we allow him to reign there until there's something that I want to do, right? And then we kick him off the throne, and we jump up on the throne and we do what we want to do. And then we feel really bad about it. And so we get off the throne and we let him back on. And in this, Paul, it's pretty fascinating. There's a couple things that are interested here, interesting to me here. He says, I want Christ to be settled down with all of the fine details. Have you ever moved from one house to the other? And have you ever had all those boxes everywhere and you were looking for a Tupperware container or something and you're like, it's in one of those boxes. Yeah. Paul is saying, I don't want you to live like that. I don't want you to live to where you can't know where things are, you can't find things. I want you to know. It's on the third shelf from the right, it's right there. I want you to allow him to dwell to where you know the fine details of his life. Um, and he says, I want you to do this having been rooted and established in love. It's already happened. It's the perfect tense here, meaning that this happened in the past, but it continues to have effects. You were rooted and you were established in love. When you came to know Christ, you came to know him because of the love that he has for you. You were rooted in that. You were established in that. But it's also the passive voice. You didn't do something in this. He did it. He did that. He rooted you. He established you. So I told you we we're going to look at one other passage. Hold your finger here. I guess you don't need to. Uh, but turn over to 1 John chapter 4. The question is, okay, how do we do this? How do we let Christ dwell in our hearts once we have been rooted and established in love. How, how is it that we do that? First John chapter 4, verse 7, I think has the answer. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not uh, know God, excuse, excuse me, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. See, Paul says the answer is actually in the loving. It is the carrying out of the love that God has placed into us that we're able to do that. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, think about it. What is love? At its very core, what is it? It's saying no to me and yes to somebody else. 
And when this vertical relationship with God is right, when, when I understand that He has loved me and, and I am established in His love, it makes it a whole lot easier to have this horizontal love. I don't worry about what you think of me or, or those kinds of things, right? Because my vertical relationship with God is established and I know that all is well there. And then Paul concludes by saying, I want you to grasp and know this love of God. I want you to know how high it is. I want you to know how wide it is. I want you to know how deep it is. He wants you to know and to grasp tightly this knowledge-surpassing love of Christ. I love that. Paul says, I want you to know it, but it surpasses the knowledge. You, got, you have to know it. Uh, look, at, look again. Sorry, I told you to turn away from there. Uh, I'll read it to you. Uh, let's see, verse 18. That you together with all the saints may have power together to grasp how wide, long, high, deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know it even though it's going to surpass the knowledge that you have of it. To me, that's fascinating. So Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is for them to be granted by God strength with power so Christ would permanently control their hearts through faith. And because of the love of God, they would comprehend the immensity of the love of Christ to be brought to fullness of God. I do that all the time. So, That being said, if that's what Paul prays for, how do we apply this in our life? How do we actually uh, make sure that we are doing this? And I will tell you, I I wrestled with, uh, with this passage for two weeks, going back and forth, you know, what I wanted to share. And finally, I, I, I had an original idea, uh, several weeks ago that we were going to spend some time just praying this for one another. And then um, I thought, well, no, I I don't think that's what I want to do. And then it occurred to me through a series of circumstances that just the moment that I think that I'm beginning to grasp this whole concept of living in love and living... uh, under the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ, my pride steps back in and steps back on the throne. Anybody else struggle with that? You see that when that reality comes, we have one of two ways that we can approach it. One is to bull up and say, ah, it wasn't me, it was that person. Or the other is to to say, um, you know, God, I, I realize, I recognize Your spirit is teaching me something in this, and I'm going to submit to it. I'm going to soften myself. So here's what I came up with. It's really basic and really simple. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer throughout this week, to pray this prayer that Paul shares in Ephesians chapter 3, to pray it. And here's who I want you to pray it for. First of all, me as your teacher that Christ would dwell in my heart, not just in theory, but in practice. Pray that I would understand this concept and and grow in that grace. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to pray it for those at the table around you. See, I think that's what... That's what Paul had in mind as he was, as he was sharing this to the Ephesians. He's, as he is saying, I want you to understand that regardless of the circumstances we are in, Remember, Paul says, as a prisoner of the Lord. Paul was in jail as he's telling them this. So I want you to pray this for others at your table, that they would know and experience the love of God in all its depth and beauty. And then finally, for our church, that we would carry out the plans and the purposes of God in all ways, always that we would understand what those plans, those purposes are, and we would be able to do that. And then I was reading something. I haven't read this book in probably uh, mm, 
I'm going to go with 20 years. Uh, it's called The Set of the Sale by A.W. Tozer. It's a collection of writings that he has done. And uh, they, he used to write for a, uh, a Christian and Missionary Alliance newspaper, periodical magazine. And they, they took them after his death and they compiled them into several books. And this is one of those books. So I want to read to you an excerpt from this because I really like A.W. Tozer. So you're just going to have to put up with it. Uh, it's a little bit long, but hopefully uh, you can uh, stay in tune. This is called God's Love and Ours. God, being who and what he is, must love himself with pure and perfect love. The persons of the Godhead love each other with a love so fiery, so tender, that it is all a burning flame of intense, desirable, ineffable. God is himself the only being whom he can love directly. All else that he loves is for his own sake, and because he finds some reflection of himself there. God loves his mute creation because he sees in it an imperfect representation of his own wisdom and power. He loves the angels and seraphim because he sees in them some likeness of his holiness. He loves men because he beholds in them a fallen relic of his own image. Potentially, God loves all men alike. But his active love lights upon some men more than others, the degree depending upon how much of himself he is able to impart to them. The truly Christ-like soul enjoys more of God's love because God sees in it a truer image of himself than in a soul less purified. God loves his son with an infinite perfection because he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. God is love. And is for that reason the source of all the, lo- all the love there is. He has set the first of all commandments that we love him with all our hearts, but he knows that the desired love can never originate with us. We love him because he first loved us, is the scriptural and psychological pattern. We can love him as we ought, only as he inflames our minds with holy desire. Yet there is also a love of willing as well as of feeling. Though we may not be conscious of any great degree of inward sensation, we may set our wills to love God, and the feeling will come of itself. Let us bring ourselves under obedience to his revealed word, and our love for him will grow. Obedience will strengthen faith, and faith will increase knowledge. And it is a well-known law of the spiritual life that our love for God will spring up and flourish just as our knowledge of Him increases. To know Him is to love Him. And to know Him better is to love Him more. Um, I will have that quote for you on the uh, sheet when, we are, when I uh, get those to you next week. The reason that I like that quote is that concept that God only loves Himself And in loving himself, he loves others as he sees a reflection of himself in them. The more that he sees a reflection of us, of himself in us, the more he loves us. The more he is able to impart that love to us. And that's what we want, right? We want more of the love of God. We want more of an understanding of his love. And and the way to achieve that According to Tozer, and I think according to Paul, we achieve that as we allow Christ to dwell more and more in our hearts. As we allow him to take that central seat. So, let's do this. Let's pray. I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to ask you this week to be praying for those three things. So to pray for me, that uh, I would allow Christ to dwell in my heart. Number two, for each other. And then number three, for our church. And then, uh, then I'm just going to open it up to uh, discussion. About uh, I've spent the better part of an hour talking, so let you uh, talk for a while. Let's pray, shall we? God, we, uh, first of all, we are incredibly grateful that uh, your spirit reminds us of the truth that you have loved us with an eternal love that your spirit reminds us that you are an infinite, uh, wise God who is accomplishing your purposes and your plans in spite of ourselves. 
God, and also that even when we fail you, uh, even when our arrogance rises up and we, we walk on our own and we, we think and we talk on our own, your love for us is constant because you see in us yourself. You see your image in us. You see your son in us. Father, thank you for only looking at our faith, not our ability to be righteous, but our, simply our ability to believe in you. God, I pray that you will make your name great in us and through us, that you will allow Christ to dwell in our hearts uh, as we come to know you better, as we come to rely upon you, as we, as we ponder your great love for us, in that we will see and know and understand the love that you have for us, and Christ will be the ultimate uh, victor because he is allowed more fully to control us. And God, in that we will live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have called us to in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name, uh, that you accomplish them for him, uh, so that his name will be made great. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. So, comments, questions. What, what is it? We have finished the introduction now. Uh, so next week we're going to go on to start answering the question, so how do we live in this gospel? What is it that's required of us? What does it mean to live according to the gospel? So that being said, what, uh, what questions do you have? What thoughts do you have? Those kinds of things. We've got about 10-15 minutes left. I think Tozer's speaking very specifically, uh, and if you were if you were to graph the love of God, the, one thing that Tozer is saying is, as God sees more and more of Himself in us, He loves us more. So, what does He see in the unbeliever? He still sees His image, right? They're still create, so He still sees the broken image. Of himself in them, and so therefore, John three sixteen is still true. Uh, it, we misquote that often, but uh, John three sixteen is still true. God did love the world, and so He sent His Son to die to offer eternal life because He saw that. Uh, but uh, the Old Testament would tell you so. Basically, I don't want to go too much into this. But there are three types of love that God demonstrates towards man. There is the uh, beneficent love of God, which God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Right? Randy's a farmer. Uh, There are some farmers that have no knowledge of God, and they get the same rain that Randy gets. The, the rain falls on, on the just and the unjust. Then there is, uh, so that's beneficent, the benevolent love of God, uh, which is there are certain things that he withholds from all mankind, right? I mean, if he were to re- relieve, remove his restraint, imagine how bad this place would be. Make sense? And then finally, there is the effective love of God, which is the saving love of God that he affects in our lives. All men don't know that until they exercise faith. So does that make sense? I think that's what Tozer is saying. Other comments, questions? Boy, you guys are a quiet group this morning. Here... You're not like uh, the three people that I work with who have already sent me text messages this morning letting me know that the Buckeyes got beat by 29 points. So I appreciate that. So I, I really like it, that quote, too, because 
um, it says that God loves himself, and I've never actually probably thought of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's often um, poo-pooed that we should love ourselves. Yeah. Um, that's very selfish to do right. that. And on the other hand, we have to love ourselves in order to love others. Right. And so... I really, I really appreciate that. And, you know, I I was thinking of that this week, that it's okay to love ourselves because we are loving the image of God in us, right? Now, we may not love everything about us, (laughs) but it's okay to love the image of God. And and I, I think, you know, there's a lot of psychological healing that can happen in that, um, as well as spiritual, emotional. So, yeah. That, that's a whole class unto itself, isn't it? Sure, that becomes motivating then mm-hmm. for us to be better. Yep. So uh, for so we're going to start at chapter four next week of Ephesians, and we're going to be going through. So you're welcome to start reading. I would encourage you. Ephesians isn't that long, six chapters. You can sit down easily read through it. I would encourage you to do that. I've been doing that um, in addition to my normal Bible reading, just sitting down uh, once a day and trying to read through it. Now, sometimes I'll read the first three chapters and then the last three. That's okay because there's really, it's almost like two books. Uh, So if you want to do it that way, read one through three in the morning and four through six at night is a good way to do that. But anything else? They're not books, they're letters. Yeah. You said the books. Well, we call them books, don't we? Yeah, we do. I'm messing with them. Uh, <laughs> He's good at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we will uh, we'll pick that up next week. And uh, don't forget, those, what are we praying for? You. Mike, each other, and the church, right? Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.